Welcome to episode six of the Podium Runner Endurance Podcast, talking with athletes, coaches, and sports scientists about their experiences and advice. I'm your host, Ian Sharman, and I'm a coach at Sharman Ultra and a professional ultra runner. This episode, we're talking to Tracy Beth Hogue, who is an MD, PhD, and she practices sports, spine, and regenerative medicine at Northern California Orthopedic Associates. She's an associate researcher at the University of California, Davis, and a journalist currently for Ultra Running Magazine. She's also a Danish-American dual citizen who has represented both countries for trail running. So in this show, we delve into a really wide variety of topics. It, it goes all over the place in terms of different really key areas that she has worked on in the past. But trust me, it's well worth it. She has some amazing advice and she's a real expert. So I was picking Tracy's brain in many of these different areas. We talked about how COVID-19 affects runners. We talked about various studies she's been part of at Western States 100 Miler and their practical implications for runners relating to bone health and metabolomics analysis. We also discussed temporary vision loss through corneal edema, uh, which happens sometimes in ultras, including how it happens and how to avoid it. Also, we talked about hallucinations in ultra running. We talked about the menstrual cycle and how this affects training and racing. And then we closed it on regenerative medicine, especially what types of things are included within that and when it's applicable, and also common myths and misconceptions. So I hope you enjoy. Welcome, Tracy, and thank you so much for joining me on the show. Um, you've certainly done a lot of varied things within your career and also within your own ultra running. So I believe you've been doing research into ultras in general since about 2013 and then uh, Western States 100 since 2014, which is where we met. Uh, I've been there every year in the last decade. So, uh, And you're a very accomplished ultra runner yourself. So welcome and thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's really fun to be on the show. So. And I have to say, I do love the articles that you write in, uh, that you used to do for Iron Farm that you now write in Ultra Running Magazine. Uh, and I definitely recommend anyone check those out. They are extremely informative and science-based and, and real practical implications. And some of the things in there, I think, are things that people don't know as much about, which is some of the topics we're going to talk about today. So two of the recent ones that you've written about are related to COVID. So um, first of those was about um, how the immune system of a runner um, affects the likelihood of getting it or protects against it. So what is the kind of overall picture there for if you're a healthy, um, let's say, relatively young person, um, because obviously most people are assuming that that it's much less risk of getting it or having serious implications. So what did you find from looking into that and from a, a wider yeah. reading of it? So um, yeah, good, good question. I mean, when I looked into it, it was really the very beginning of the pandemic and not with, not a lot was known about the specific risk of COVID to athletes. And so, you know, I wanted to look into it because a group of physicians that I was in were saying that, you know, ultra runners, they have high levels of inflammation at baseline. So they're going to be expected to get more severe cases of COVID or be more likely to get it. And that didn't sound and would that right. Would that apply to marathon runners or just most serious runners, would you, you know, say? Or, or I mean, the this was really a, a theory that was being talked about among physicians. Mm -hmm. Don't really know a lot about the difference between a marathon and an ultra marathon. And, you know, if you, as soon as you add the word ultra to it, everyone thinks that, you know, it's unhealthy no matter what it seems like among, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of physicians who aren't athletes. So, but, but it, it didn't strike me that that made very much sense because when I measure markers of inflammation in athletes in general, now it doesn't matter if they're marathon runners or ultra marathon runners. Um, so they're, um, 
their CRP and ESR, which are measures of um, markers of inflammation, are usually very low. Um, so I, I started to look into that and found that actually athletes do have lower levels of inflammation at, at baseline and in general have more robust immune systems and are more resistant to getting infections. So, you know, I thought that was all um, good, um, but I, I wasn't able to find any evidence at that time that I wrote the article of whether or not that applied to COVID. Um, but, you know, after a, an athlete has run a, a particularly hard race, you know, for them, now that's different for different athletes, of course, there, there is evidence that people are more likely to at least have symptoms of an infection. So it may be that the immune system is kind of not functioning optimally in the week or two after a, a hard race. So for that long, I'd certainly heard about it being the few days afterwards. And, and right. I think we all know that the likelihood of picking up a cold even after doing a big race is, is typically right. higher. And I think it's it's really the first few days afterwards that, that the big risk of actually. And now, I don't know if it's getting an infection or it's more infectious symptoms. I mean, so IgA levels dropped actually during a race. There was a study at Western States looking at that's part of the initial immune defense when a, a virus or bacteria enters the body, the IgA levels help protect the body from infection and that tends to drop during ultra marathon so it does seem like at least theoretically there's an increased risk of infection we've seen the athletes report um increased symptoms of upper respiratory infections um from from comrades marathon studies among other studies and so i thought well maybe you know there's some connection between athletes going out and running very long distances and potentially you know, getting COVID or exposed to it. And I started to look into different athletes that had contracted COVID who were on the trail and ultra running uh, forum. And of the ones who got it, I, I wasn't really seeing any connection with their training volume, the amount that they were running and the severity of the disease or their likelihood to get it. Um, and there certainly have been cases of severe COVID in, in athletes who run or who uh, participate in shorter or long distance um, events. And so, you know, just from the amount of research that I was able to do in it, I, I wasn't seeing a correlation between you know, really hard events and developing COVID, but the numbers were so small at that time, but I, I haven't seen any specific research done in that since that time. I mean, we know the risk factors for developing severe COVID are related to age and obesity um, and other underlying health issues, but, uh, you know, whether or not it's related to how athletic someone is, that really hasn't been looked into in a formal way. So if anything, presumably being healthier and being um, not obese and, and having a lower chance of all these other potential uh, issues for COVID is a good thing from running. So I mean, we'd expect yeah. that being a healthier person will be better for that as, as I we would expect so. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I would just point out that especially, you know, in the beginning, I was surprised though that, you know, otherwise healthy young people who were athletes were, were actually getting very severe cases where they were admitted to the ICU. And, and I just think there's something that we don't understand about why certain people People get very severe cases and that, you know, there are just certain people who don't seem to be protected despite being relatively young and despite, you know, being quite healthy. I, I mean, those cases are very rare, but, you know, I, I wish I could say they didn't exist, but they do. 
And, and obviously for most people, even a, an unhealthy person still, the risks of getting COVID are not huge if you behave well and you stay away from people and socially distance and wear masks and things like that. So that's right. Yeah, I, we know I, I'm a lot more about you know, how <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's anything that's different or things that are a higher risk factor. And I think probably the, the main thing here is that there's not um, there's not anything particularly risky about being a runner or even immediately after you've done a hard session, you're probably not severely at risk, right. but also you wouldn't be an idiot and finish a race and then go and sit in a bar. You know, that that's, exactly, sitting in the bar exactly. that's the issue as opposed to doing yeah, the race mainly. This has so much more to do about, you know, the types of exposures that people are getting. Um, yeah. So it, 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 exactly. Great, great point. So yeah, wearing a mask, uh, we, we really know is, is helping to protect people from getting COVID and probably the infectious dose. So decreasing the amount of virus that you're exposed to decreases the severity of the disease. There's more and more evidence to support that. And I think the thing that most runners are probably more concerned about, and I've certainly seen this with people I coach, that many of them almost brush it off saying, well, if I get it, it probably won't be that severe because I'm not obese and I'm healthy and all these other things, which is obviously not guaranteed, but I can at least see kind of their point of view there. Um, but I think the the bigger thing is if there are lasting effects. So it's one thing if you right. get you could like a head cold for a couple of weeks and then it goes away completely and there are no effects. But one of the other articles you wrote about COVID for Ultra Running Magazine was about the lingering effects. And, and one of the stats you had in there was that 87.4% of hospitalized patients still have symptoms two months later after they've uh, supposedly recovered and have left hospital. And that was uh, from Italy. So what, what have you found out about that? And, and what would be the, your general warning things to people about how seriously to take it, that even getting it mildly, would that matter? Is it only if you get it severely that there's likely to be lingering effects? Right. Great question. So I, I wanted to look into that among athletes and runners. So I did another survey study looking at the trail and ultra running community. And I found that 50% of athletes who had a COVID diagnosis were still having symptoms two months later. Actually, it was a little bit over 50%. I, I was really surprised by that. And the symptoms that people were having were fatigue. Um, they were heart palpitations, headaches, um, shortness of breath. Uh, and, you know, it was interesting because a lot of those um athletes were, were really having them more when they were exercising. So it sounded like it was an issue of sort of like starting exercising again, and then really just reaching their limit once they were, once they started going again. And I think maybe part of the reason that the general population might not have as high of a prevalence of, of lasting symptoms is they're just not pushing it as much as, as runners are. So runners notice very quickly when something is off. But yeah, I mean, there, there have been, there was another study from Germany that looked at um, inflammation in the heart on MRI and they found, I think it was 89 out of a hundred patients, whether or not they were hospitalized young or old had inflammation in the heart. Um, I think, I believe it was a month after the diagnosis. Um, so there's, there's still a lot of things we don't know. There haven't been a lot of for sure cases of infection of the heart, but, uh, you know, we, we see evidence that the virus is actually getting into the, the heart muscle cells. So, I mean, that, that's a concern too uh, for athletes. And I think that's the main thing for runners is that it's one thing if you get ill and then you fully recover. It's another thing if you get ill and it screws up your ability to be an athlete for life. And I think this is particularly the case with professional athletes in many sports. It's yeah. one thing to say, okay, they're, they're all in their 20s, they can take it and then they'll be better. But this could potentially be 
ending a career for someone. And so I, I suppose the other thing that I think is particularly interesting here, and I, I don't know how much research or if there's much knowledge about this, but is if you are asymptomatic, then could you still have lasting effects? So someone who doesn't even know they've got it and then they don't feel any effects now, but maybe they have lung or heart issues that that hold them back. And if you're at the elite level, that knocks you back a couple of percent and you're no longer elite. Do we know anything about that? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So I was actually just looking into the guidelines right now for athletes and they say basically if you're asymptomatic and you have a positive test, you should take two weeks off of exercise and um, and then just basically resume again two weeks later and just continue on as normal um, unless and you're having a, symptoms. Presumably if they haven't had any more symptoms. So if something gets worse, they'd obviously change right. that. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, but but that's, you know, this is kind of still arbitrary at this point because we don't really know um, because, you know, there were case reports in, in New York that I remember clearly where people were coming into the emergency room for other problems like a car accident. And then they realized that there were these, there was a scarring and what they call ground glass opacities, a sign of COVID in their lungs. And they didn't even know it. They had no symptoms from it. Um, now I would think a runner would notice something like that though, but you know, maybe someone who's sedentary would, would not notice it as much. Um, yeah, and, and I think the, the thing here as well is just the in- insurance uh, principle here that because we don't know, and it could be something that is particularly harmful, even a young, healthy person should not be brushing it off. Right. Exactly. You, you definitely shouldn't brush it off because I, I, you know, I think, you know, maybe it, it, you, yeah, certainly I, I don't want it. I don't think any athlete wants it because you don't want to live with the uncertainty that something could potentially happen to your heart. I mean, something could happen that's long lasting. Luckily, what we've been seeing is that people seem to be getting better and better um, as they recover. Um, so I so far, I haven't seen anything that I that I thought, wow, this is going to last maybe for their lifetime. Thankfully, I haven't seen that yet, but I just don't know because there are some athletes who are diagnosed in the spring and they're still, you know, dealing with fatigue and, and headaches and shortness of breath. So we just really don't know how long it's going to last. And is there anything else that you found out that maybe isn't as much public knowledge that you think is important for athletes or even just the general public, to be honest, to know? Um, let's see. Uh, I know in particular you, you've mentioned quite a lot on Facebook about um, schools reopening, for example. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, you know, luckily, it, so far, the evidence is showing us that the children are, are, are relatively spared um, from COVID. And it's really not understood why, but they have a very low rate of hospitalization, low death rate. And it may end up being that it's because they have a very robust immune response in the beginning. So they're able to fight it off um, very quickly, very efficiently. Um, but again, that's a lot that's not known, but something certainly changes you know, either around adolescence or around the age of 18 that, that people seem to be impacted differently by COVID. Um, and one, one other th- uh, theory I want to put by you, just because I've seen it in various articles, yeah. is the idea that in a lot of poorer countries where there are younger populations and where people tend to live close together in cities, so places like India with massive cities and yeah. Africa, um, that one of the reasons they maybe haven't seen as severe death rates and infection rates is maybe because there's been other similar type of airborne viruses that they'll be have been um, around them more, and that may have given them a little bit more protection because they've got used to this type of thing. 
Do you right. have anything, any ideas about that? I mean, I know it's just purely speculation at this point. Right. I actually saw an article that came out today that supported that, that exposure to other coronaviruses might be protecting um, against, you know, more severe forms of COVID. And I think, I think there might be something to that. And I don't think we have a for sure answer yet, but um you know, I in terms of Africa, I think it's also important to remember that they have a very young population there. So we're not seeing the death rate that we're seeing in uh, first world countries, because if the life expectancy is between, you know, 55 and 65 there, they really don't have a population that's going to be expected to be dying in any in any large amount. Um, and uh, I'm not sure about the life expectancy in India, but that could certainly be pay- playing a role of why we why it seems to be less severe there. Yeah, I think I read that the average age is in the low 20s or mid 20s. So yeah. obviously, a large portion of the population are in the much lower risk category. Yeah, exactly. No, thank you for that. And I think it's just a good topic to have some updated stuff that is very specific to to runners in particular. Um, As I mentioned at the beginning, we've got a lot of totally different things to talk about based on some (laughs) of the things that you've researched in the past. So uh, in particular, I want to talk as well about some of the studies you've done at Western States. So because that is a very unique population, there isn't as much research done into ultra running. I know there's been several things in the past around the Comrades Ultra being a huge race in South Africa, particularly Tim Noakes and other people um, doing those kind of things. But um, the first of those that I want to mention uh, was one I was actually involved in myself, which is the bone health uh, study uh, and about stress fractures and how likely this is and, and how strong runners' bones are. So um, could you just tell us a little bit about what you found out about looking at these highly trained um, people doing 100 miles and their bone health compared to other runners potentially and compared to the general population? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for participating. <laughs> There's so much interest at Western States in participating. I, to, I was quite happy to find out that I was at least above average for uh, for my bone density, which good I, for I you. hoped for, but at least that was the case. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. I'm glad to hear it. Um, yeah, so that, that, that brings up a good point, actually, that we were surprised to find that actually the male runners had a higher prevalence of low bone mineral density. So it was around a third um, of the male runners actually had um, – a, a below than lower than average um, Z score. So we we measured um, bone mineral density with DEXA scans. Um, so this is the first time that that was done in an ultra running population, um, and the women actually were on par with what was expected uh, for their age group uh, for their bone mineral density. So they didn't deviate from the general population, the women ultra marathon runners in terms of bone mineral density. Isn't, um, that, uh, isn't that kind of surprising though? Because it is really surprising. That, that runners are meant to be getting stronger bones because of the pounding and say cyclists don't get that benefit. So uh, was that all unexpected to see no, so that that's a really good question so there are definitely different types of impact sports so running is actually considered a leanness sport um and so runners that are particular are, are at particularly high risk of having low low bone marrow density and stress fractures um and it's thought that that's due to body mass index um but sports like soccer um, or football or sports where there's more axial loading is not as uh, the same focus on being lean, then they tend to have higher bone mineral density. Um, uh, so it wasn't unexpected that runners, we actually expected to see more low bone mineral density, especially in the females than we did because in the college uh, age population, um, there is a major problem um, 
in both men and and, and, and male and female runners, but a little bit more so in females with bone stress injuries and low bone mineral density. Um, So it was interesting to us to see that, that women ultra marathon runners actually are, you know, not at, at higher risk for low bone mineral density, but the women ultra marathon runners uh, did have about a third of them had had a bone stress injury in the past where it was, it was lower for the men. It was just around, if I remember correctly, around 15%. Um, and so that was a little bit, um, that was interesting that it didn't really correlate, um, with the bone mineral density. Um, do you think a lot of that could come down to just individual variations and, and mistakes that a runner can make? And so, uh, if, for example, there is a benefit to getting stronger bones from having um, more impact, but then that is counteracted by someone either eating unhealthily small amounts, particularly if there's, uh, and I'm not saying this is prevalent, but there's certainly some people who eat too little to, to make themselves lighter when they're runners, or, or some other things that they may be doing that are like overtraining that then could be causing more of a problem. So I suppose the question is, would you generally say that running is helpful for bone density and bone strength as long as it's done in a reasonable way and not too much and it's not overtaking your life and your diet? Yeah, I mean, I would say in general that we found that that running is actually usually a risk for having low bone mineral density. Um, however, that risk is probably due to underfueling for the amount of activity that a person does. Um, you're talking and there about so very it, well-trained people who'd, who'd be doing a lot of running. So exactly, the person who does yeah. a 5K and they're a bit overweight, that wouldn't be the, the case. That wouldn't them, apply probably. to them. Exactly, exactly. It kind of, yeah, it, it, it starts happening, especially with, so when women um, stop menstruating um, and when men have too low of a testosterone level, you know, the same uh, sort of syndrome can happen in female athlete triad, it was called in women. So now we know there's a male equivalent of that. And that is when um, runners start to be at risk of having stress fractures. Um, and the low bone mineral density in the men, I, I'm really curious whether or not that just has to do with the cutoff of normal that's set in the in the general population. Because if the male uh, ultra running athletes are really quite lean and a lot leaner than the normal population, then it may be that that bone mineral density that is considered too low is actually not too low if they're not having stress fractures. So it may just be a question of the normal range not being appropriate for men, but being more appropriate for women. But I'm not sure about that. (laughs) No, it's very interesting. I always just assumed that running was kind of unambiguously good unless you overdid it. But I didn't realize that uh, sports that are maybe a bit more power-based and therefore the athletes yeah. tend to be a bit more muscular, that it is way more advantageous there. So that, that's, uh, Yeah, I think, absolutely. I think that's me, part certainly. of the reason it's good for, for runners to, to cross-train and to strength-train. And um, I, I personally started playing soccer quite a bit more, actually, after I started learning about bone health because – well, partly because my kids love it, but also because I thought, you know, I, I really, I, I've, I was diagnosed with osteoporosis when I was in my early 20s when I had a stress fracture. So I've been basically doing all that I can to fight that. And I didn't realize that about the axial loading or the, 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 the sports that allow you to load in different ways and um, that don't necessarily favor leanness can really help with bone mineral density. 
And, and yeah, I'd say having a, a variety of other sports, particularly in your background, is generally helpful anyway to have uh, developed well. And, and I think that comes to the, the higher level concept that it's good not to just become a runner from the age of five and do no other sports. It's right. good to be oh, exactly. more balanced Great than that for many other yeah. reasons, including this one. Yep, exactly. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think that's something that I wasn't as aware of. But uh, at least it sounds like it's not detrimental as long as you are cautious about not making mistakes, as long as you're not cautious, overtraining, and yeah. And and really, I think the 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 fueling aspect is very important because, well, one of the correlations that we found in women, interestingly, was uh, their bone mineral density correlated quite well with their levels of estrogen and testosterone. So if if your you know hormones are at the right level, then you're much less likely to have problems related to stress fractures and bone mineral density. And, and really the way to do that is to make sure that nutritionally you're, you're getting, you know, what, what your body needs. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, and so women can that, easily that, know that when, by losing their period. Um, yeah, that's and, a, and, and we'll de- come onto that as well. Cause I know you've written articles yeah. about the menstrual cycle and I found there are some very easy, simple takeaways from that as well as some more in depth, but I'll come back to that side of it a little bit more uh, later. But I suppose the, the one thing in terms of takeaways for people is um, make sure you're eating healthily and enough and, yeah. uh, and being aware of what your body's signals are giving you. Is that the, the simplest way to think about it? But Absolutely. And that should be the yeah, way to navigate yeah. through well. And- and just in terms of bone stress injuries, you know, they're, they're not, they're, they're often missed. And so just so people are, are, are aware, you know, a bone stress injury or a stress fracture, um, a bone stress injury is the umbrella term, but it can be a stress fracture um, or it can be a, an actual, well, it can be just a sign on an MRI of a sort of a pre-stress fracture. Usually those present with pain that, that gets worse the more you run. Um, whereas a tendinopathy or something like that usually will, will warm up, um, while you're running. So it's like you start running and it hurts and then it gradually starts to feel a little better. And then maybe by the end of the run, it hurts again. Whereas a stress fracture, it's like you start running and that pain is, is bad and it stays bad and gets worse (laughs) the rest of the run. So that can be a sign of a stress fracture. And unfortunately, I think probably half the people listening to this are familiar with uh, with how that works. So uh, right. hopefully yes. we can avoid more of that in the future, though. Exactly. Yeah, it's a common problem. Uh, was there anything else, any other takeaways that you found from that study or, or other things you've looked into around uh, bone health relating to ultra runners or marathoners? Um, well, uh I, I guess yeah. I, I guess we basically covered the the, the main points. Uh, you know that that the, the most interesting thing to me, I think, was the hormone levels because we didn't really know that, especially in women, that the importance of of testosterone um, in in terms of maintaining bone mineral density. Um, so that was a that was a really interesting one to me. And again, it just all goes back to you know you. You really, it's, it's, it's the whole system of your body has to be functioning well in order for your bones to, to be the right bone mineral density. And, and, uh, and that, that comes back to just proper nutrition. So I guess. Yeah. And it's a holistic approach. Training isn't just about how much you're running and how hard it is. It's everything else in your lifestyle that that can affect it and uh, affect your ability to recover. Exactly. Yep. 
Well, thank you. Uh, the next uh, study I want to talk about that, that you did at Western States was related to uh, metabolomics, which um, I'll first of all just get you to explain exactly uh, what the analysis of that is and what, what metabolomics are um, and what that study was about and what you found out. Yeah, so so metabolomics is basically the study of metabolites. So you're looking at the processes that are occurring in reaction to things that happen to your body. So in reaction to training, in reaction to diet, and the things that you're you're doing that might be making a change in your body. So you measure the levels of those metabolites. Um, and the idea with the study um, was. Uh, so this was Dr. Weiss, who was at UC Davis. He, um, he actually used to be the medical director of the race. So some people might know him from uh, Western states, but his idea was that he wanted to look at um, the fastest finishing runners versus the slower runners and see if there was a difference in the metabolome of these runners. And so what we did end up finding, it kind of jumped out right away, was that this group of um, uh, molecules called phosphatidylcholines was higher in the fastest finishing runners versus the slower runners. Um, and then just we ended up doing the study the next year and we found the same difference existed before the race and after the race. So it wasn't something that developed over the course of the race. And then we compared the runners to non-active controls and the phosphatidylcholines were higher in the runners versus the controls as well. So we certainly think that there's some, these molecules play some role in physical fitness. um, And we're not exactly sure what it may be that they're being used to produce choline. So choline is important um, molecule in, 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 uh, in, in physical fitness. And so there have been studies that have shown that supplementing with choline improves um, performance in races, in running races. So we think it may have something to do with in restoring the body's fuel or, or um, uh, sorry, the stores of, uh, of, of uh, choline. And so runners are, the fastest runners are apparently very good at doing that and producing those phosphatidylcholines. So that's a lot of big words. <laughs> it, it is, yeah. It, and, uh, several that I'm sure that are not just, just new to me, but to, to many other people too. <laughs> yeah. But I suppose the, the high level concept there is, is it that these faster runners are faster because they've got these extra things and others could then try and do it, like you just mentioned with right. uh, adding supplements to, to improve performance? Or are they performing better because they have that? So which is the direction of causation there? Yeah, is it that, so I, yeah. I, I, I mean, it's a great question, and I don't know for sure, but I – I suspect that it is an adaptation that occurs over time with training. And the reason that I say that, so basically what I'm saying is I don't think that certain people are born with higher levels of them. I think it occurs with training. And and it's because of a study um, that actually looked at patients um, suffering from Parkinson's disease. And what they found was that they had extremely low levels of phosphatidylcholines. And so in my mind, I thought, well, that is probably because they are they're more sedentary. So, you know, it, I, I don't think that people who end up developing Parkinson's are born with like a super low level of phosphatidylcholines. That didn't really make sense to me. I think that it's something that occurs, you know, a process that occurs in the body that people get better and better at building up um, these stores of the phosphatidylcholines. And that's what we were seeing. And so if, if it is something that just comes from being fitter and training better, 
is that useful for maybe people if they're getting blood tests to be able in the future that that's included within that to be looking for it to have a, a sense of what improvements they're getting with their training is it yeah, something no, that that's a great or question some, yeah I hadn't thought about that, but that's certainly uh, that's certainly a possibility that you could, you know, measure your your phosphatidylcholine levels and see are they are they rising. the The thing is that our our study was really the first one to to find. There was one other study that found this, but we really don't know a lot about the individual variation. Um, you know, if there are some runners, you know, who do really well who never get high levels, um, so that would have to be looked into further in the future. I think before we did blood testing, there would just need to be be more research on, you know, so, are there so some runners the, who are just the beginning. not responders? Yeah, this, this sounds this like it's more the beginning, beginning of learning exactly. about it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Exactly. Well, no, that, that was, again, just even any correlations you find between running faster and elements of, uh, of the, the athletes' bodies, I think is uh, always useful to to learn more and to have further research and potentially further nutrition uh, advice that comes out of it. But at the moment, is there really anything people can do? Uh, you mentioned maybe choline. Um, right. Yeah. How, I mean, take, is, that, is that a pill? Is that an injection? What, what, and is it legal as well? <laughs> it's a pill. I actually, <laughs> I went and looked at the store cause I, I thought, well, or I bought it online. I can't remember, but they do exist. And I started to get interested in, you know, well, do they have any effect? And there's a good study um, by, Jaeger is the name of the author, and he basically looked at people who he looked at a bunch of different studies, and it was a it was a like a systematic review, and he he found that basically all the studies showed that supplementation with choline before a race improves performance. And I thought, wow, this isn't really talked about that much. Um, so then I bought like a bottle, and there are these big yellow pills, and it's just like a supplement, and. I don't know. I never really used it. I just took it a couple of times, but I didn't do anything really experimental with it. <laughs> and presumably if it does have but, a significant uh, effect, it, it'll be become a banned substance. So it'll either be, it doesn't do a whole lot or it's not allowed because it does do a whole lot. Right. I guess, at least. <laughs> yeah. It could potentially become a banned substance. Yeah. It's, it's not right now, at least not to my knowledge. I, yeah. I do think I looked it up at the time, but I, I don't believe that it is. It's, I mean, it's just a natural substance. So they wouldn't be able to really test it would be difficult to test for it because everyone has it in their bodies. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Well, no, I think it's just fascinating getting research from the more extreme end of the scale, whether it's done at Ironman competitions, 100 milers or, or similar places like that, because there's certain things that only happen at that level of extremity. Um, and to yeah. be honest, that's a few of the other things that we'll be talking about. So the next one uh, <laughs> yeah. is something you wrote about um relating to corneal edemas, uh, the, so vision loss basically for ultra runners, which I had heard a couple of friends have had issues with that in the past. I've never seen it in terms of people around me. I just heard about stories about it. But um, what is a corneal edema and um, yeah. how does that so, kind of come about in an ultra? Uh, yeah. So let me let me tell the story a little bit back up and sort of sure. just tell you about how we figured this out. So, um, so there there was some research from the Vermont 100 and I can't remember. There was one other race that showed that 3% of a hundred mile runners developed vision problems. And then I was working with Marty Hoffman um, on the initial study and he was really interested in looking into why are runners losing their vision? It seems so, so strange. Um, and, uh, and so then we ended up doing a study um, of 173 people who are ultra marathon runners who had said that they had lost their vision during an ultra marathon. And 
I think we were both really surprised that we got that many people <laughs> to yeah. participate in the study. I and, mean, it sounds uh, pretty serious if it's happening to that many people. Right, exactly. Um, and we had no idea what was causing it. Um, and then we started looking at the way people described the symptoms and the examinations that they had had done by eye doctors. And and basically, it these almost everyone described the same pattern of symptoms of blurriness in either one or both eyes that is not not painful and that goes away within hours to days after the race and then we through looking at medical records we were able to find that these runners all all of them except for two that we had medical records on had had corneal edema on their examination and then two had like irritation from contact lenses. Um, and then other, otherwise people, if they waited a few days to get examined, everything was normal. Um, and so then we started to think, okay, so maybe this really is uh, corneal edema. Um, and then there have been um, a, a couple studies since that time that have found uh, the same corneal edema um, in both cyclists and, and runners. Um, and so we, we're getting more and more evidence and pictures and examinations that this really is happening actually to, to, to a lot of runners. There was a, it was the run rabbit run. I think that was what it was that uh, where Courtney DeWalter lost her vision and then Mark Hammond at the same race and one other person at the same race, all at the same time, same year. Um, and, it was and I saw the photos. I mean, the, yes. the, the eyes look kind of glazed over. They do not look yes, normal exactly. So the cornea is like the clear part at the front of the eye. Um, so that's in front of the iris or the colored part. And basically what happens is fluid gets into it for some reason. Um, and it gets all milky looking and it's very blurry to look through. Um, and then after people stop running and they close their eyes or they rest for a while, it just basically gets better on its own. And, you know, that's what we found that, that, that this condition is, it just, it's transient. Thank goodness. It, <laughs> um, and it goes away on its own. Um, but and then uh, it goes away completely. So there's, there's no long-term effects or if you yeah, do it 10 so, times, you go blind or anything like that. Right. So we had some runners who had it over 10, 10 times, like every time that they ran mm -hmm. um, a race. And so the, the theory that we have right now, and it's not just our theory, but a few people have had this theory that it has to do with lactic acid. Um, and so maybe the lactic acid level in the blood and also just in the fluid in the cornea, because there's there seems to be this combination of like really um, hard effort and then also getting debris in the eye that are uh, causing this to happen. Um, and also races at altitude seem to be people have higher risk of getting at races at altitude, like run rabbit run. Um, and, uh, it's cause we've found that wearing glasses of some kind, you know, sunglasses, any sort of clear glasses can prevent it from happening. Um, so there's and is that some, because it probably prevents stuff getting in the eye. Exactly. So it's like basically like that clear part of the eye, it just becomes overwhelmed because it's like, it's getting blood that has lactic acid in it and it's getting things in it. And then people have their eyes open for a long time. And so it's all these things working together. And then, then the cornea basically gets inflamed. It can't take anymore. And then your vision gets blurry. 
And what was the shortest race distance or run distance or bike distance that this happened to someone? Are we talking like being out there for 12, 24 hours kind of times, or can it happen in, in shorter amounts of time than that? Especially yeah, so, I suppose if someone's pushing hard, maybe the, the, in a 10K even. Right, exactly. So I haven't seen it in any, I'm trying to think, in a 10K race. So the problem was when we did the study, we only were looking at people who had developed it during an ultra marathon. Um, and so it was only through talking to a few people who had had it like repeatedly that I would hear that people had had it in maybe distances a little shorter than an ultra marathon. But, you know, I, I don't think I heard 10 K. I mean, people had to be putting in some large amount of effort for, for, for a long amount of time. And it may be that it's happened to people in marathons as well. Um, but I will just say that the people who, had repeat episodes and we did end up finding that there people who had had refractive surgery. So like LASIK surgery were more likely to have um, repeat episodes and were more likely to have it happen like earlier in a race. But, but the most common race that it would happen in was a hundred mile race. And I can't tell you exactly the shortest distance that it might happen in. I would not be surprised if people have had it during a marathon so it's typically more risk if it is really long, yes. um, high altitude, a lot of effort. Um, I'm guessing yes. kind of windier or on trails, so you're more likely to get debris in your eye and you're not wearing glasses. Are those the main things? Were there any other ones? that? Because I personally have never had it, but also I always wear sunglasses, even if it's ah, not interesting. that. So yeah, I mean, most people don't yeah. have it yet, um, yeah. ever. So like, it's like we're, yeah, we're talking maybe up to 3%, I said, of people in a 100-mile race. So most people don't get it. But but um, we, we actually looked at wind and altitude as risk factors in that initial study that we did, and we didn't find that they were risk factors. But, um, but I think that we didn't have enough power to find that uh, correlation because since that time, uh, there have been so many races that I have heard of people losing their vision at altitude. And so I think there must be, must be something there. And then I, um, there's also a, a report that's coming out um, that I'm publishing with uh, an ophthalmologist from Sweden about a woman who was basically running in with a wind that was very strong, that was coming from the right. And she lost her vision in her right eye. And it seemed like there oh. was maybe some, some correlation there too. So Still some things we don't know for sure, but... But at least people have always recovered from it. So it's a temporary thing and it's not like you could need to panic and think, well, I'm I'm blind for life now. What am right, I going to do? Exactly, exactly. We, we only had one participant in our study who said that he had symptoms that were lasting longer. And the problem was, so I contacted him for follow-up about, well, what symptoms were you having? And what what happened, and, and I never heard back. So, um, but that was that was one out of the hundred and seventy three. So we really don't know about that particular case. But otherwise, I haven't seen any evidence of this lasting of it lasting longer than. Let, let me see. So the so the longest that I've seen it last would be I think six days was the longest okay that's a decent amount of time to have a it, it is yeah, yeah yeah exactly but that's not that's not common did, so the did some people have it improved hours yeah so, so in theory you could be sat in an aid station lie down close your eyes have a nap and potentially keep running and have it at least improve if not go away yeah so interestingly so we so I hadn't had anyone where they said that they were able to get their vision to improve to the point that they were able to, to keep running again until there was uh, there was a girl who I was working with who I, I so basically 
I told her, you know, start using eye drops, put on the glasses. So like she knew she'd had it before. And so she was very like aware when she started to develop, to develop vision loss again. And then she stopped and waited for like an hour and put on the glasses and used eye lubricating eye drops. And then she was actually able to finish the race. So, so she was the only one that I'm aware of who was actually able to stop it <laughs> before it got too bad. Okay, well, I think I've just given everyone something else to be scared about when they do long distance <laughs> well, stuff, and, but and, also that it's not too much of a worry and that there are a couple of things they can at least do to improve it with eye drops and glasses. Exactly. And, yeah. yeah. The things to worry about are like if the if the eye is painful, so that, that would not be typical of this condition. And and if, if people are like, if there's darkness in the vision or you're having other, you know, symptoms like weakness, numbness, anything weird like that, um, so, or red redness of the eye like those you know especially like significant redness any of those would make you think well maybe something else is going on but if it's just painless blurring of the vision um and someone can look at your eye and they can probably see the cornea is cloudy then you can say okay that's probably what this is um and and you can be reassured Sound, sounds good. Ho- hopefully nothing too much to worry about, even if it does happen to someone, at least even just knowing what it is and that it'll go away, I think could be a weight off your mind. While if you're Absolutely. 12 hours into a race and suddenly you can't see anything, I think that'd be quite terrifying for most people, especially <laughs> if they've not, never heard of this issue. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So relating to that, we, we mentioned Courtney DeWalter a minute ago, and that's who I um, interviewed on the previous podcast. Okay. And one of the things she's had uh, a few times as, as well as this going blind uh, within a race is hallucinations. And so yeah. I did email you about this before and, and there doesn't seem to be any kind of real clear scientific evidence or, or process for how hallucinations occur. But um, could that be related to eye damage or is it more, I suppose probably more the brain's interpretation of what you're seeing. And, but, but the things that I'd said to her, are, could it be maybe something to do with low blood sugar, fatigue, um, just general um, lack of sleep um, coming through. And so I think you mentioned that low blood sugar probably is not uh, related to it, but much more than that, we don't know. So what are your thoughts? So I don't don't think that there's any evidence that we think that it's coming from the eye itself. Um, So, or the, or, or the eyes and, and basically because it, there, I, I don't know what the mechanism behind that would be. I know people can get retinal migraines and sometimes they will describe, you know, like zigzag appearances. Um, and sometimes that can be due to like a vasospasm of the artery to the eye. But I don't, that, that, that's not necessarily correlated with, with exercise at all. So I don't think that mm-hmm. that has anything to do it, it with it. It does sound like it's not the eyes that are having the issue. It's right. the brain having it, the issue. It's the yeah. brain, right? And I, you know, I guess I, I kind of think of it as, as a overwhelming of the brain for some reason. So it's like, you're not able to fa- f- filter out the fall information. And, um, you know, the, I think it's a combination of just fatigue, you know, physical and mental fatigue. And then I don't know if there's some other, um, uh, you know, if, if any electrolyte imbalance plays a role in it, I would, I would certainly be more inclined to think sodium before I thought blood sugar, because actually, the body is extremely good at maintaining blood sugar while a person is running. And if you look during exercise, people's blood sugar actually goes up. And so the, the, the body always prefer preferentially um, gives sugar to the brain. Um, So really everything else would have to shut down first before the brain. (laughs) So I don't think it's an issue of blood sugar, but I think it's more of a case of, of, of like, 
I don't know if, how much you know about delirium, but but when when patients are admitted to the hospital and sometimes maybe they're they're tired, they're disoriented, they have some sort of illness, and and it's not uncommon for people to start seeing and hearing things that aren't there, and so maybe there's a connection between those two things, and and uh, even delirium, it's kind of like well that's a multifactorial thing that's really kind of poorly understood why it even happens. Um, and so, it does sound like yeah that hallucinations are the the extended stage if you go beyond the initial delirium and I think most runners even in a marathon you're going to maybe have remember that kind of fuzzy brain where you can't think quite as straight and you're fatigued and tired right, add that exactly. on for a few more hours take uh, allow for some sleep deprivation and we can see how it's just step by step getting worse and then hallucinations I suppose could just be the extreme end of that I think so I mean it, I I've personally had sort of like quasi hallucinations. I don't know if you've had these where like you think you're getting near an end of a race and you, you think you see things and you think you, I thought that I heard people like cheering, like it's the finish line, but it's more like my brain is playing tricks on me. Yeah, you hear the um, wind and, and you think it's cheering in the background. Or you're, yeah, you're just not exactly. quite identifying things accurately. Yeah. Right. And so I think it does have something to do with the brains, like just um, a capacity to filter out the false information. Like you're not able to say that's not real. <laughs> Um, maybe due to fatigue that I guess that would be my suspicion, but I, it's really not known from what I've looked into, like why exactly they happen during ultra marathons. I'm surprised there aren't some studies from, I don't know, 80 years ago in very unethical ways where they, <laughs> they forced people to get to that point to see what they could learn from it. But uh, yeah, exactly. I'm not aware I mean, of, of hearing about that kind of thing. I'm trying to think of how thing. to study it. Like you would, if you would have to do some like EEG or brain, you know, yeah, some probably sort get of the person to explain the what they're seeing. Exactly. One of the things that when I asked Courtney about it, she said she doesn't tell people what's going on. So she might be seeing something really weird, but she doesn't tell her pacer or her crew in the moment. She She'll just uh-huh. tell the story later. So I think uh, usually yeah. the runner is just trying to, or the athlete of whatever sport is just trying to make sense of the world at that point. So they're not really, in, <laughs> exactly. they're not really just being and you don't, a passive You don't want observer. to waste time talking <laughs> or energy talking about something like that, right? You're like, I just have to finish. I'll just ignore that weird white thing over there. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I don't think we, we're going to get to the uh, the the pure cause of hallucinations here but i think that was still enlightening just to learn a little bit more about it and particularly again for issues that can occur more at the extreme end of things um going something that is much more applicable to 50 percent of the population we mentioned before about the menstrual cycle and particularly that some female runners can get to the point of not even having a period so um the article you read i thought was extremely useful for both women to understand how their body is changing through the month and how that'll affect their their training and also for coaches to to be able to just incorporate this to a greater degree i don't ask the people i coach to put in their menstrual strike cycle into their plan but i do just explain some of the simple concepts that you had in your article so do you want to just go over the general kind of ebb and flow through a month of of how that's affecting exactly so so most of the research has shown that that women perform better when the when estrogen is the dominant hormone over progesterone. So, so women's cycles, you know, the, the beginning of the cycle, the follicular phase, the first two weeks, once the, uh, once menstruation starts. So estrogen will be the dominant hormone. And usually that's when women feel the best because their temperature is lower. Um, and they're, they, they, there's just better, um, recovery and better performance, probably just because estrogen promotes that. And then in the second half of the month, so progesterone becomes the dominant 
hormone. And that's the time when, when women have more difficulty with shortness of breath, more problems with cooling down and with longer, hotter workouts are more difficult. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think even non-athlete, athletic women notice that before you get your period, you don't feel <laughs> optimal. Um, so I think it's just important for women to know that, that you can just kind of expect to have, you know, two, two weeks out of the month where you're feeling better in your workouts than the other two weeks. And that's normal and it's okay. <laughs> And with it, with your own training, for example, do you factor that in for when you're going to do hard efforts or um, you can kind of give yourself a bit of a pass and say, well, of course, that run didn't feel as good, given what week it's in, that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, definitely, because I, I, I usually it's actually the way that I know when I'm getting my period because I start my, my workouts aren't as good. So I don't really factor it in, in my, my own training. Actually, I just kind of like say, okay, well I'm feeling off. Oh, I, and I can sometimes see that my heart rate actually goes up when I'm training right before my period. And for me, it's more like, okay, I understand why this is happening. You know, it's okay that I'm not running as fast or that my heart rate is a little higher today because it's expected. Um, so yeah, I, I actually haven't really incorporated it, but I, I could, I'm probably just too lazy to do that because I just get in workouts when I can. <laughs> well, it sounds like it's something that, that can obviously just be one of the many factors that leaves you feeling different. So you don't change your life yeah. all the time for every little thing. Exactly. But, um, yeah. but on, for races, they're obviously on set days and you can't time time things perfectly for those. Right. So, would you say that that, that um, accounts for differences in performance? Let's say the Olympics, you know, Olympic finals on a certain day, some women are going to be at a more beneficial part of yeah. their menstrual cycle than others. Absolutely. Can, can that be the thing that makes the difference? Because it absolutely still seems to be certain could. athletes keep winning. So it doesn't matter what day it happens. Right, they still right. win. Right. I, I definitely think it could, could explain some, some off days, you know, that women have or like a really awesome performance. It might, might be playing a role. Uh, that's certainly certainly possible is there anything women can do to try and optimize that um other than timing races for certain points or is there anything they can do if it happens to be the badly timed day for the race that would overcome that right. 20 degree like I mean, getting more sleep you know, or anything I, I, yes i mean absolutely getting i mean that that's always that that always helps i mean i know that there are women who go on birth control pills so they can actually control the day that they get their period um, so that it doesn't come on a race. Now, I, I personally haven't gone that far. I haven't like recommended it to anyone, but I know that there are some women doing that. Um, uh, and that's, that's an option. Um, and to the birth control pills or whatever method they're using, does that have a big effect on how big those swings in the hormones will, well, obviously it affects yeah, the hormones. Yeah, no, that's, that's so, a really it, good it, question. How much will that affect it? So someone who chooses to use birth control versus not, how yeah. would that be affecting their training? So the, the birth control pills that are used now um, have not been shown to impact, you know, performance. Um, so that was a concern, uh, you know, a, a couple of decades ago that women's performance was actually adversely impacted by taking birth control pills. And now it doesn't seem like that that is an issue. Um, and it's and a lot of women are actually using IUDs now, which don't interfere with the the um, hormones in the in the same way. So. Um, if that was your and question, I'm for, not sure. For women <laughs> who, are, who are maybe training too hard and it's got to the point of, of not having a period, which I, I believe is called amenorrhea, uh, correct yeah. me if I'm wrong there, but, but that, that's, that's I, correct, I, it, yeah. does, it does seem to happen with, um, a small percentage of, of female athletes. And I believe people like Paula Radcliffe didn't have a period for many, many years. So yeah. 
how severe is that? What what are the effects of that? Yeah, and, so and is, is it always question. bad? And 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 it is bad. Um, you know, and I I think a lot of women don't realize that it is bad, and I think a lot more women have it than people know. I, I really don't think it's it's that rare um, for women who are runners to have amenorrhea, and um, and a lot of women just sort of hide it or they think it's beneficial. But but the issue is actually that the like cortisol and and markers of inflammation rise in the body. Um, bone mineral density is going to decline. I would say that's actually a really big one. So women who are not getting their periods um, are more likely to be getting stress fractures. And and then cortisol is going to interfere with the body's ability to heal optimally. Um, so, you know, women who, especially young women, I, I find it, it just impacts young women a lot more. They seem to lose their periods easier, but, um, that, that losing your period, um, it starts you off on a vicious cycle if you don't get it back, because like, you know, you, you basically are not able to optimally recover, um, when you start getting injured. Um, yeah. No, I mean, it, it does sound like it's, it's always bad. It's just, I hear of professional athletes having it and still being at the top of their game. So generally, yeah. though, that's something that's more likely to lead the, to injuries and, and affect their ability and, to and, still be at the top. And it really depends on, I think, how long it's going on. Um, you know, like if it's if it's only happening for six months or maybe a year and then you get your period back, you know, that might not be long enough time for people to, to be developing that many adverse effects from it. Um, but it's more of a concern if it continues and continues and continues because you're then basically you're just going to get more, you know, further decreased bone mineral density, um, you know, less resilience to healing. So, so you can see how that it would just become a bigger issue the longer it, it goes on. And certainly young women, um, and can compensate for that for, for quite some time before they start noticing the detrimental effects. And then I, I, I've got another question here. I think it might end up going down uh, an entire multi-hour podcast of its own. But what about the fact that some uh, athletes have become better after having kids? Is that related to this? Yeah. It must be affecting hormonal balance and other things as well. Um, and in a in a short summary of that, uh, I'm sure there's a huge amount of research and, and a lot of things we could talk about there. But is that something that is, is common, that, that people will tend to perform better afterwards, assuming they can get to the same level of, of health and, and training? Yeah, it it is. You know, the best study that was done uh, of this was by uh, James Clapp. And he followed women out, I believe it was 10 years after they gave birth. And they still on average had, these were women who ran during pregnancy, and they still on average had a higher VO2 max 10 years later than what they had before they got pregnant. Wow. Um, which is just insane that, that, that something like that would last so long. And, um, but I, in terms of just really quantifying how much benefit women get, I, I haven't, you know, like right after the race, I, I, I haven't seen, or right after the pregnancy, I haven't really seen that. Um, but it would be a really interesting study for someone to do. Um, and the reason that it happens, you know, is probably multifactorial, but there's an increase in plasma volume when women are pregnant um, and that helps with performance. And then um, there's an increase in growth hormone. There's an increase in um, both estrogen and progesterone. So you're basically, your body is in a state where it's like building, it's building a baby and it's building you. <laughs> um, it's making you more resilient uh, as well. And, um, and, and, 
you, and, and so a lot of women will, and then you add to that, that you're running with the weight of a baby. So it's basically mm-hmm. like, you know, you're, 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 you're getting two factors that are helping you improve um, your performance when, when, when you're pregnant. Um, and uh, yeah. Uh, so I'm not, uh, I'm not sure exactly how much the performance is, is increased, but it, it would be expected that women would be able to perform better and run faster Um after their pregnancy, if they're able to continue to train through most of their pregnancy. Well, I think one of the unintended consequences of uh, this year and having a lot of races canceled is I've seen quite a few elite level female ultra runners uh, choosing to have a baby this year. So this could be, Ah. uh, uh, we could see some results (laughs) of that and people who are still, um, some of them certainly still in their prime. Um, So I I think that'll be uh, one of those unusual experiments that wasn't intended to to see how that affects their careers afterwards. That would be really interesting to study. I hope hope someone does that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's cool. <laughs> well, hopefully we've just given someone a good idea. So the, yeah. the last area I wanted to look at was another one of the, the articles you've written about, and it's an area that you, you spend a lot of your time working on, and that's regenerative medicine. And I, I, when we're talking about one of the things that affects most runners, again, the uh, injuries in general, and particularly having joint injuries and things that can become uh, permanent or, or debilitating are a major part of that. So um, what are the, the, the main options for runners when we're talking about regenerative medicine? Um, I think there's three yeah. in particular you'd mentioned in in the article that you wrote. Right. So, um, so regenerative medicine um, is basically uh, the way that you uh, different ways that you can stimulate the body's natural healing process. Um, and uh, I think the one that that people are probably most familiar with, if they've heard of it, is platelet-rich plasma or PRP. Um, and so, basically, what 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 that involves is drawing your blood. And then spinning it in a centrifuge and taking the platelets out of your own blood and then injecting those into an injured area of your body um, to stimulate the healing because the platelets basically are the body's uh, cells that, that, that stimulate the need for healing. And so they attract stem cells to the area and other growth factors. Um, and so there have been... Uh, 12 randomized control trials, for example, for knee osteoarthritis showing that injecting those platelets um, provides, you know, better pain relief uh, than a sham injection um, at at two years even. Um, And so, uh, and then there's very good evidence as well for, for tendon injuries for using those platelets. So it's completely natural because it's from your own body. So that's, that's, uh, gives it a very, you know, low amount of, of side effects or risks. Um, and then, uh, there's, there's a couple other options that people can do. So, um, another one that I mentioned in the article does actually doesn't come from your own body, but it's basically just, um, uh, using sugar, um, so you use dextrose and you mix that like with a numbing medication and you inject that into an area that's maybe painful or not healing. And that is just an irritant. And what it does is it's, it stimulates the body to start healing right there. Like, hey, there's a problem here. And then suddenly the body starts focusing on an area that maybe it hasn't been paying enough attention to to heal. Um, and are both of those injected? They're both injected. Yep. And then the last one would be like harvesting your body's own stem cells. And you can actually get those from inside of the bones of your body. So typically people would get those from uh, the bone uh, in your low back, um, the iliac crest. And 
and then remove the, the, the cells from there and then re-inject them into an area that's not healing properly. Um, and so that, that's the bone marrow aspirate concentrate, it's called. And all of these, um, they, they, they're a bit more extreme than, they're not the first thing you go to typically. Do they have particular downsides or uh, pain is one of the things that I've heard about, particularly with, yeah. uh, with the injections? Um, exactly. Yeah, so, um, so there's usually increased pain, especially after the PRP and the bone marrow aspirate um, injection. And that's basically because the area becomes inflamed and that's kind of, that's what you want. Um, and that pain, usually it can last for a few days to a couple weeks before you actually start to feel better. And so usually athletes will have to take some time off from their usual training. You know, you can still kind of go about your normal daily activities, but you have to gradually work back into your normal training routine. And it's mostly because you're going to be limited because of the amount of pain you're in when you start to try to train. Um, and what, when are these kind of things suitable for people? Is it when they have a chronic problem that isn't going away with rest yeah. and other things? And, and so this is a uh, the, the step before surgery, basically. Is, is that a fair way of looking at it? I mean, yeah. It, it, so so normally uh, when people have a, you know, a tendon problem or, or a joint problem, the first thing to do is to get some good physical therapy to do, you know, strength training can really treat a lot of tendon injuries because you improve the blood flow to the tendon. You basically give it rest, but you, you strengthen the muscle. And then by strengthening the muscle, the, the tendon starts to heal. Um, physical therapy can be very effective for arthritis of the knee as well, arthritis in other places. And then um, if patients are, you know, feeling like they're not getting better fast enough, doing a platelet-rich plasma or bone marrow aspirate concentrate injection or, or the prolotherapy can kind of help speed things along. And, you know, I would say the, the downside is that um, these treatments are not covered by insurance. Um, and, in, you know, when it comes to the, the, the prolotherapy and the PRP, it's actually not because there's not enough evidence that they work. It's just the insurance companies don't find them to be cost effective is, is the answer that I'm getting when I look into it. Is that because of them not being successful enough, regularly enough, or just it's expensive and they deem that your quality of life for a normal person, not an athlete? Right. Matter I, about this. Like it has to do with the expense, but I, because like I said, there's, there are many randomized control trials showing that PRP works. So I, I have trouble myself figuring out why, why it's not covered because it seems like so much less expensive and less invasive than doing surgery, but getting things to change in the medical community is uh, kind of an uphill battle because people are still, you know, it's covered to give people, a cortisone injection, even though we know that there's a risk of tendon rupture, we know that there's a risk of osteoarthritis getting worse by doing these injections and that they're probably not healthy in the long term. And yet that's still what insurance companies are covering, despite the data showing they're really not helpful. So is, is there a downside here that if you start doing this, you either have to keep doing it or are these one and done type situations normally so or not? Usually people will get one. I would say probably 20% of people might end up getting it done a second time if they're not, you know, feeling completely healed from it. Um, but yeah, usually just one. 
And for someone who's maybe been told by their doctor or their PT that one of these options, some kind of injection would be a, a useful next step for them. Are yeah. there any myths or misconceptions that we should be thinking about with them or yeah. that you've, you've come across regularly? Absolutely. Because I think um, there are clinics in the United States that are that are selling these quote stem cell treatments. And you really want to look into what those stem cells are because um, people are trying to sell like stem cells from another person or amniotic fluid, you know, out of a bottle. And that's not what I'm talking about. Um, Because so those actually have been shown not to contain any stem cells. Um, and we still don't really know if they're uh, how effective they are. They're they're very experimental, and in general, you you don't want to have you, well, you not in general. You just don't want to have stem cells injected from another person into your own body because you're going to have an immune response um, and reject those stem cells um, if there really are stem cells in there. So it's it's basically a big scam that's happening right now all over the United States, uh, the people are trying to sell these treatments. Um, is, is that quite common then that, that some of these, these neuro treatments, people would be getting it from, uh, other people's stem cells or, or similar. So that is it just places trying to offer the newest thing, even though the research isn't there to, to show that it works. Right. They're just trying, I mean, they're basically just trying to make money. <laughs> just trying to take, yeah, if the, here's the new thing, it might work it's, for you. It, Do you exactly, want to pay for it? Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, take anything that it, you know involves supposedly involves someone else's stem cells because my husband actually works in stem cell and bone marrow transplant and they have to do an extensive matching process in order to inject someone else's stem cells and you know he's explained to me you know this is that would be very dangerous for someone to get stem cells but presumably the bone marrow would have to be your own bone marrow or exactly. a donor it has to be. who is like so a family these are products or from your well Right. If you even with a donor from your own family, that that's got a lot of risks in it too. So the types of treatments that I'm talking about are are from only from your own body. Mm-hmm. That are then you know it's safe. <laughs> and and have you found there to be particular downsides other than the the, the potential pain? Do they? It sounds like the re- research shows they generally work. But are right. there long term effects there other than just the, the cost that you're going to go through either way? Right, the cost is the other big one. And other the, other than that, we haven't seen any long term negative effects from having these done. Thankfully, so, so there's nothing to say that it, that there's anything particularly to be wary about with these. It's right. not like exactly. oh, if you're having I mean, to do that, it's highly any, risky. Any sort of injection, there's there's always risk of some sort of damage, you know, to the tendon or something like that. But that's that's much rarer than than what we see with a cortisone injection. That something like that would would happen. And and actually, um, there's a very very low risk of infection um, from these injections because um, they're actually used uh, to treat uh, non-healing infections in bones. These uh, the platelet-rich plasma and the bone marrow aspirate concentrate. So so it's really you know as far as procedures go, it's quite safe, but it can it can be pretty painful when you get it done, and, and at least for a few days after. Uh, the fact you mentioned cortisone there, I think that's cortisone injections are one of the other ones that runners will have heard of a lot or they'll know friends who've had it. Right. And again, hearing that it's typically quite painful. But how does that differ from these? So these are regenerative. They're trying to use the body's own, well, apart from, I suppose, injecting the, the uh, sugar, but they're yeah. trying to get a, a, 
a response to it. Is that the same kind of thing with a cortisone injection that it's trying to just get the body's own immune response to improve and rebuild? Or how does that so it, it, it actually works in the opposite way. It actually suppresses the body's immune response. Um, so it's kind of like uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen, but much stronger. Um, and so it suppresses the immune response in such a way that it basically like stops the inflammation. But it's only it's, it's, it's a temporary thing. I mean, once the drug is gone, nothing has been healed. Um, and there is, you know, there's a, there is potential for some tissue damage, especially if you keep getting cortisone injections and cortisone injections can uh, raise are actually expected to raise your blood sugar for a few weeks after you get them. So that's more like a, a painkiller to help deal with something right it now. Is, rather yeah, than something it's to basically fix it. a painkiller. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you. Well, was there anything else you wanted to mention about uh, the regenerative medicine? Obviously, it's a huge topic that you spend a lot of your time on. And we've only spent 10 minutes on it. But um, are there any other kind of key things there that you think people should be aware of, especially as a being a runner? I mean, yeah, I think that people should be aware that those treatments exist and ask their doctors about them because, you know, I mean, surgery is sometimes the answer, but I've I've had a number of patients who've been able to avoid surgeries that they thought they were absolutely going to need and then end up not needing and they're running again and doing great. So, you know, it's definitely something that I would I would try. In fact, I have tried it and it works for my Achilles. So, um, so, you know, it's definitely something that just runners should mention to their doctors. If they have a doctor who's recommending surgery, say, well, would I be a candidate for platelet rich plasma or bone marrow aspirate concentrate, you know, just to kind of bring it onto the table to see. Um, cause, uh, yeah, I, I think it could help a lot of people actually avoid having surgery. Now, there are some some obviously things that can't be treated with it, but it's worth mentioning. And just to, to put rough numbers on it, um, we mentioned that it's, the, all of these are expenses, and I'm sure there are different prices in different hospitals around the U.S. and in different countries, I'm sure. Uh, well, it'd probably either be covered or cheaper, probably. But what are we talking thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars? Yeah, so the typical price for a platelet-rich plasma would probably be anywhere between five hundred to two thousand dollars, depending on where you go. Um, and and then for bone marrow, um, it would the typical price would be somewhere between like twenty five hundred and thirty five hundred dollars, something like that. Okay, thank you. No, I think that's, that's again good just for people to have an awareness of these things in yeah. advance and hopefully to to never need them, of course. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So thank you so much for all the topics we've covered today. Uh, I, I feel like we, we got some good points out of them, even though each and every one of them could have been an entire series of podcasts, to be honest. But uh, thank you for all of that. And was there anything else you wanted to mention about anything we've talked about today? Well, I just want to say you asked such excellent questions, and I'm really impressed. Um, so uh, I, I, I don't think there's anything else to mention other than it was a real pleasure. And thank you so much for doing so much research into, you know, the, the articles and research that I had done. So it's awesome. Well, what I'll do is I, I will put links to where people can find you on the internet and, and the things that you've done. And in particular, I would highly recommend people um, get a subscription to Alt Running Magazine to read Tracy's articles and also my own. But I think Tracy's are a lot more informative, to be honest, and a lot more detailed. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for your help there. And uh, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. I hope you all enjoyed that. 
And you can follow Tracy on Twitter at, at @tracybethhogue, and her Facebook posts are an excellent way to understand scientific findings, including about COVID-19. Or you can contact me, Ian Sharman, at sharmanultra.com, and also let me know if there are particular topics or guests you'd be interested in. We have contact details for Tracy and myself in the show notes too. Uh, rating the podcast is also appreciated and will help us get found out by more runners searching for this type of content, as does subscribing for the podcast. Check out podiumrunner.com for articles for runners of all levels, including the occasional one by myself too. Thank you, and see you next month.